You went, I gave you the bathroom. I never went. Oh, come on, you practically fogged up the mirror with your. <sighs> Meantime, you didn't get the message, even though I had to go. <sighs> okay, fine. Well, if give I me did... a second, I'm a little dizzy. Oh, no, 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 no. I know you too well. I know exactly what it meant. It meant, you smell, get out. Ray, you may smell, but you offered to leave. Well, I didn't mean it. Well, why did you say it? I was being nice. Well, this should be a little lesson for you. You should always mean what you say. And you should always mean what you sigh. <laughs> you want to know why I sigh? It's like a pressure valve, a release. Living with you, if I didn't sigh every once in a while, I would explode. Oh, well, you think that you're so easy to live with? Yes, as a matter of fact, I think I'm very easy to live with. Ha! You are so wrong. Open up the window and let some of the wrong out. You, you, you have so many annoying habits. Oh, yeah? Like what? Okay, uh, you know how, well, when you read your magazine in bed and you lick your fingers before you turn every page? So? I hate that. Get out of here! Oh, yes, yes, because you slurp your finger. Slurp? This is not a slurp. Oh, it's a slurp, okay? It's right next to my ear. And then you, you take your wet thumb and you put it on the page, which, by the way, is disgusting. Oh, 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 I'm sorry I'm disgusting you while you're trying to clean your toenails with a hanger. Yeah, the only reason I did that was to see if it works, okay? And it does. For the big toe. Okay, fine. And I lick my finger when I read a magazine. If that's all you got, you got it pretty good. No, oh, I got plenty more, sister. I got plenty more. All right? Uh, how about the way you sneeze? What is wrong with the way I sneeze? No, because you don't sneeze. You, you try to stop it. <laughs> you know how annoying that is? Not to mention you could blow out your eye that way. How would you like me to sneeze? Well, like a person, just let it go. A person goes, ah, choo! Not, ah, Oh. So I should just let it go and spray everything like you. You sneeze like it's a big Broadway musical finale. Ah, choo! Ah, choo! I know why you try to stop your sneeze. Because you want to control it. Yes, it's all about control. That's right. You got to control everything. Especially in here. Up your nose? And into my brain. Well, I guess I would use the biggest opening. Isn't that good? Yeah. Any Everybody Loves Raymond fans in here? 
That is my uh, second favorite sitcom ever. Um, third would be The Office. Any Office fans? Okay. Number one, though, definitely goes to Seinfeld. Got any Seinfeld fans in here? Yeah, good. So, yeah, we're in this series, Keep Your Love On. My name is Luke Hazelmeyer. I'm one of the young adult pastors here at Vineyard Church Northwest, along with Wilson Cochran, the other young adult pastor. And we're in the series, Keep Your Love On, which is the premise is that love is not just a feeling. It's not just a behavior, but really it comes down to a choice. And that in every moment, with every changing circumstance, it is our, our responsibility to make loving choices, despite how people are acting towards us. We have to keep our love on. And so one of the hardest places to keep our love on, I'm sure all of you would agree, is in conflict, you know, like we just watched. That it is in conflict when emotions are going and words are being said that um, are more so coming from emotions and not from what we really think or believe. And arguments are happening and there's disagreements and there's misunderstandings. It is probably in those moments that it's hardest for us to keep our love on. And so I want to talk about what are some healthy ways to communicate in conflict and how do we actually confront someone to resolve conflict when it comes up. And you know, Wilson and I, we used to get in conflicts all the time. You know, if you don't know this, we've been best friends since we were uh, nine years old. And uh, we used to get in conflicts all the time. We used to get in conflicts with each other. I remember one time we were playing basketball and we got mad. So Will took the basketball and launched it at my head. And it like hit my head and the ball went like 10 feet up in the air. And so then I chased him down. And as he was slipping and falling to the ground, I bopped him right in the eye. <laughs> he had to go home. And then an hour later, he called me like, Luke, let's just let's keep hanging out. I'm sorry. You know, he's always been good at keeping short accounts and that kind of stuff. I remember my mom, she made us like stay apart for at least one day, you know, because it was the most serious fight we'd ever gotten in. But we get in conflicts with each other. We'd also get in conflicts together with other people. A lot of times this happened at shows, concerts we would be playing at, our band would be playing, or we'd be attending a show. And so usually what would happen, this is pretty much always how it happened, actually. I'd be standing off away from Wilson, talking with someone. I'd look to my left, and i see him like shoving some dude that's like twice his size. And I have to come in and, you know, get involved and, and help out. Um, I remember one time we were at the Trenton Fisherman's Club. And we, there was probably like 40 people there. We were watching this band play. And there was this guy that was moshing. You all know what moshing is? <laughs> Someone said no. <laughs> and uh, this kind of music, people would just kind of gather in a circle and swing their fists and jump around and kick. And it kind of looked like... Martial, art, like martial arts, basically. And so there's this guy moshing, and Will was near him, and the guy was just kind of like swinging his arms back like this. And uh, I guess he was getting a little too close for Wilson's comfort, so Will kind of stepped up and shoved him forward. Well, he didn't like that. And so he came back again with another one that was like even closer, and so Will shoved him again, and then it came back and it got like super close to Will's head. And before I knew it, my other friend Aaron had like, jumped on this guy and taken him down. And, um, and then I heard someone say, the cops are coming. And so I was like, oh, shoot, I need to get my friend out of here. So I went and grabbed Aaron. I literally picked him up off of the guy and held him in the air, went outside, got in my van. We were pulling out of the place just as a police car was pulling in. And then I realized that I had left 
Wilson <laughs> and my younger brother at the venue with a bunch of people that their friends had just beaten up and the police. And I was like, that was probably a bad plan. Will's texting me like, where are you? What did you do? Yeah. So that is obviously an unhealthy way to resolve conflict in case you uh, didn't figure that out. Um, but I think it begs a good question because Christians usually, you'd think that because we have the Holy Spirit in us, we'd be good at resolving conflict, but kind of we're not a lot of times. And sometimes we're aggressive, but I think most of the time there's this Christian perception that Will and I, when we go to these shows, we should have apologized whenever we, whenever we offended anyone. We should have ran away whenever anyone was angry with us. And we should have like... And when any time someone was angry with us, we should have done whatever it is they asked us to do, no matter how disrespectful it was to us. And that's kind of like the Christian way to resolve conflict. You know, turn the other cheek, um, run a mile, go two miles if they ask you to run one mile. And so um, I don't actually think that is the way that we are called to resolve conflict as Christians. We're not meant to put none of our, our desires and our needs forward and only accept the ones that the person in conflict with us has. I think we're actually called to communicate our own needs. And I want to look at some scripture that talk about conflict so that we can kind of dive in and understand what is the Christian way to resolve conflict. So if you wouldn't mind, turn with me or scroll with me to Matthew 5. We're going to be starting in verse 21. We're just going to read these four verses, then I'm going to give you some context to it, and we're going to talk about it. So, Matthew 5, starting verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. So, those four verses are taken from a very lengthy sermon that Jesus gave. Anyone know which one it was? Sermon on the Mount, right? And so in the Sermon on the Mount, you read a lot of stuff in there where you're like, wow, this is like super hard. I can't imagine living, I can't live up to this, you know? Like basically in that passage we just read, Jesus said that calling someone a fool is akin to murdering them, you know? So it's like in, his, in God's eyes, it's the same thing. Another place in that, in the Sermon on the Mount, what he says is that um, you've been told not to commit adultery, but I tell you, if you even look at someone else with lust, you're committing adultery with them in your heart. And it's like, dang, that's like, how are we supposed to live up to that? And then at the end, he says, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Anyone else be like, how is that possible? And so what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount as he is speaking to Jewish people who have believed their whole lives that they can earn their way to God through their behavior. That the righteousness that they desire, they can achieve it. 
They can earn it by being good. You know, when you earn something, you receive wages. You deserve them. But that's not grace. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's showing them, you know what? Maybe you think you can earn righteousness based on the laws that I gave to Moses, but I'm going to kind of up the ante here and make it extremely clear to you that you cannot achieve righteousness on your own. You have to have supernatural intervention in order to get it, which was Jesus on the cross. It would happen a couple years later. And so that's kind of, that's the context of this sermon. And so um, then he says about conflict, if you realize your brother is something against you, even as you're worshiping at the synagogue or at the temple, leave your offering, stop worshiping, go resolve your conflict. And uh, this sounds easy enough. Sounds easy enough. Just go resolve conflicts. But I know that for a lot of people, maybe you can identify with this. I know I can a lot of the times. Resolving conflict and confrontation is something that at the thought of it, it causes fear to rise up in you. That the prospect of resolving conflict oftentimes causes you to become afraid and anxious and nervous. Now, Wilson is not one of those people. He is uh, confrontational in a good way, I suppose you could say. He's never afraid to come and tell me when I screwed up something. And uh, we resolve it, and it's good. Me, on the other hand, I'm a lot more averse to conflict and confrontation. Sometimes I'll just kind of like avoid it, let it kind of um, build up in my heart. And so I don't know where you fall on that, but... I know for a lot of people, there's a lot of fear that rises up in them when they're thinking about conflict. And I want to point out one thing about fear really quickly. Last Thursday and Friday at house group, we studied, um, house groups are young adults ministry. We studied John chapter 20 verses 19 through 31. And what is happening in John 20 verses 19 31 is that Jesus has just been crucified. And it says that the disciples were hiding in fear behind closed doors due to their worries that the religious leaders were going to come and kill them. And so I was looking at that and thinking, okay, why were they so afraid? And I was like, well, Jesus had just been killed. And so in their minds, their savior had lost. And so because their savior had lost, they were afraid. And not only were they afraid, they were acting on that fear and hiding So I was thinking that, you know what? I think it's true that whenever we act on fear, what we're really doing is believing that Jesus has lost in our circumstance or our situation. That he, that this circumstance is just too much for him. You know, that he, he doesn't have a say in it anymore. And now we just kind of have to self-preserve. But the truth is, no matter how hopeless it looks, he always rises again. He always resurrects. And so there's always hope. And we always have the victory no matter what the circumstances look like around us. And so I want to tell you that not only should you try hard to resolve conflict, but actually it's part of who you are in Christ. You don't believe me? Let's read 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. So Paul talking to one of his disciples, Timothy, we've read this verse a couple of times so far in this Keep Your Love On series. Really awesome verse. Let's read verse seven. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, 
but of power and love and discipline. Now, when he says he's given us a spirit of power and of love and of discipline, that kind of sounds a little strange. That's not everyday language that I use anyway. I'm not going around saying, hey, do you have a spirit of this? Or, hey, do you have a spirit of that? It's kind of like something. But I used to read that verse and think, oh, God has given me like a burst of courage or a burst of power. Like he has just like given me a temporary injection of discipline. No, spirit refers to who we are at our core. Who we are at our core. And so when Paul writes, he has given us a spirit of power, that means we are powerful in Christ. And that can't change based on our performance. And when he says, given you a spirit of love, that means we are love at our core. And we are discipline at our core. You hear that, all of you creative types, right brain people, perceiving Myers-Briggs personality types, you are disciplined at your core. So that means if, if we have a spirit of power, that means we are powerful. And I want to remind you all what it means that we are choosing to be powerful people in every situation, that that is part of keeping our love on. So let's, look, let's review that definition of powerful people. So... A powerful person is someone who says, I'm willing to be responsible for my life and the choices that I make. Powerless person would be the opposite of that. So I'm willing to be responsible for my life. So you, not only is that something you should strive for, but that is something that you are. You are a person who has the courage to be responsible for your own life and your own choices. And we should never give in to fear. Experiencing fear does not, is not giving into it, but acting on it, hiding out, kind of like the disciples did, is giving into it. So from that verse, we realize that we are called not to avoid, but we are called to handle conflict. He said, if you realize that your brother is something against you, stop what you're doing and go resolve the conflict. And it's actually bad. He, Jesus tells us that for a reason. It's actually bad news when we choose not to resolve our conflict. You know, I was thinking about this and I was like, you know, I think that choosing not to resolve our conflict is kind of like getting sick with something and choosing not to take medicine. I remember uh, about a year ago, I developed a, a sinus infection. And if y'all don't know how this works, it's kind of like you're, you have these like cavities. My mom explained this to me. She's a nurse. You have these like cavities in your skull and they fill up with like mucus. Uh, this is great Sunday morning material, isn't it? <laughs> and the mucus will actually like go into your lungs from there and then come out your nose more. And you know, you cough, that's when you cough up green stuff. And yeah, yeah sorry guys, I see your faces. Um, and not pleasant. And then your body's like, oh, you're sick. I guess we need to make more mucus. And so it's kind of like this cycle. It's like perpetuating. And so I was just back a year ago. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to let this ride. I'm sure it'll go away eventually. Month and a half later, I still had it. Been coughing stuff up every single day. And I was on this ski trip with my family. And I was telling my mom about it. She's like, oh, I've got some antibiotics for that. Here, let me give them to you. Four days after taking medicine, the whole thing is gone. You know, I think that's kind of how conflict is. 
It's like we can choose to not resolve it and stay in this sickness, stay experiencing these negative things. But really, all, it's, it's, it just takes one conversation a lot of times, not all, every time, a lot of times to just to make the relationship well again and to stop experiencing the negative consequences of it. So we're called not to avoid it, but to handle it. And we're actually hurting ourselves when we avoid it. Second thing I wanted to point out from that verse that we read is that he says, if you are offering your, if you're giving your offering in worship at the temple or the synagogue, and you remember that you have something against your brother, stop what you're doing and go resolve the conflict. And I used to think that what that meant is like, if you're worshiping God and you realize you've offended somebody, stop worshiping God and go get things right before you can continue to worship him. Maybe you can identify with that understanding of the verse. And I was thinking about it and I was like, you know, that doesn't make much sense when we think about the rest of the gospel because that makes it seem like we have to earn the right to worship him. That we have to prove ourselves worthy. We have to kind of make sure that our slate is clean before we go and worship God. And it seems like if we have that attitude, we're moving out of grace and back into the law. And so I was thinking about that and I was like, man, what does that mean? And what I think I realized is that we're not, we're, it's not like we are um, stopping our worship to go resolve conflict so we can worship again. But actually, I want to suggest to you that resolving conflict there is an act of worship to God. That whenever we are acting out of our identity as sons and daughters, as of, when we're acting out of our identity as righteous, that that is an act of worship. That the essence of worship is us acting out of our identity. And so, when, because of our powerful identity, because of who we are as powerful, we go and resolve conflict, that is actually worshiping God just as much as singing to him or as giving to him. And so, so yeah, sometimes there's one form of worship that's more urgent than another, but it's all worship if we are acting as righteous sons and daughters. Okay, that's conflict. Now let's look at how do we actually do this? So we know that we're called to resolve it, but anyone tried to resolve conflict before and not work out so well? Okay, three of you. You guys are liars. <laughs> No, really, you just hate raising your hand in church. I know you. Okay, so let's take a look at, Jesus actually gives us a model for how to resolve conflict. So let's look at that. Matthew 18. Turn to Matthew 18. We're going to start in verse 15 and read through verse 17. It's Jesus talking to his disciples. So, verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." So that's the biblical model for resolving conflict. One thing I want to point out 
Any of you ever tried to go to your brother and show him his fault before? And be like, hey, um, I got a verse for you. Uh, okay, Matthew 18. Go and show him his fault and he will repent, you know? I mean, I've done that before. And I remember when I first read that, I was like, oh, we have a formula that makes conflict neat and it'll never be messy now because it's in the Bible. <laughs> and I went and I'd show them their fault and then they'd show me about six of my faults and soon we're just showing each other our faults and nothing's happening, you know? And so the point I want to make is that confrontation is a lot easier said than done, right? You guys agree with me? And, and I think that the problem that exists with that passage that people will take it and kind of like not take it out of context but they will use it in an isolated way without considering the rest of the what the bible says about how we are to act and love on the people around us you know it's kind of like i could be a jerk to you 23 hours of the day and you know maybe be nice to you for an hour but then i find that passage in there and I take it to you and I just got to expect that you respond very well to my, to my uh, confrontation. No, I think that confrontation happens within a context of a lot of other important Christian behaviors and lifestyle choices. And so what I want to do is give you all a framework for how to see confrontation um, happen in a healthy way. And I think that if you want to have a relationship that has confrontation in it, you have to also include other things in that relationship. And so, yeah, I'm going to show you an illustration. It's called the confrontation encouragement feedback triangle. And the purpose of this illustration is to help us develop healthy communi- a culture of healthy communication in both in our relationships. And if you, uh, this can be for, if you're a manager or if you at work, to establish that healthy culture of communication. If you're in a small group or any kind of ministry, we, want, we don't just want healthy communication to happen sometimes. We want a culture of that. And kind of how this got developed, it was really profound and crazy. I was living at Van and Lori's house still, and I was sitting at the desk in the room to kind of just spending some time with the Lord in the morning, sipping on coffee and kind of meditating on some scripture. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, I heard God speak to me. And I heard him say, Luke, you have to have a healthy culture of confrontation at house group. I was like, okay, that was random. And I wasn't thinking about confrontation that day or even that week. You know, It just kind of came out of nowhere. I'm like, okay, that's cool. And then he said, but you can't have a healthy culture of confrontation without a healthy culture of feedback. I'm like, oh, okay. And then he said, and you can't have a healthy culture of feedback without a healthy culture of encouragement. I'm like writing this stuff down. Like, man, this is awesome. I have it in my journal still. And I just, okay, that's cool. Thanks, God. And so I was just kind of thinking about that. And all of a sudden, this illustration came to mind. You know, my mind thinks in diagrams and, uh, and bullet, like bullet point lists and illustrations. And I know a lot of people can't identify with that and sometimes call me a robot. My interns call me a robot. Seriously, they do. Um, I can't help it. It's just how my, that's how I think. So, so yeah, let's take a look at this illustration. So the goal is to have health, a culture of healthy communication. And I think that that has three elements to it. First element is encouragement. 
So if we want to have a healthy culture of communication, there has to be encouragement involved. And so a couple of things to note about encouragement. One, there is research done that I learned of that said that most human beings, unless they receive at least four encouragements for every one constructive criticism from someone, they don't feel believed in or valued or loved. And that's kind of crazy because that means that if I am your supervisor or your leader, I could be encouraging you three times as much as I'm giving you constructive criticism, yet you would still feel like I don't believe in you or love you or want you. So you need at least four to one. And actually, it's not until you get beyond 12 to one that it starts to feel fake, is what the research showed. So that's kind of crazy. Second thing, we we need to have no strings attached encouragement. So I worked with this guy in my other job. I go and we go into schools and we present this program that consists of a number of group activities and um, speeches. And I'm a speaker for it. And I used to work with this guy who, uh, after we would share our stories, there's a team of three, he would uh, sometimes come up to me and say, hey, Luke, I've got some encouragements for you. And immediately I knew that that meant he's buttering me up to give me a criticism. Any of you ever experienced that before? Where someone's like, hey, can I just give you some feedback on how you did that? You did so well. And you're like, okay, you know, here it comes, right? And that's because he only ever encouraged me when he wanted to criticize me. And so what that means for us is that if we do that, pretty soon the people that we're in a relationship with or that we're leading are going to start to think that our encouragement is just kind of fake and lip service so that we can criticize them. So what that means is that if we want to see healthy relationships, if we want to be a leader that has followers that actually believe in us and believe that we believe in them, then we have to give them encouragement frequently that has no but to it. You know, no encourage, it has to be encouragement that has no strings attached. Third thing, encouragement has to be specific, has to be specific. You know, I, uh, I used to, again, I, I used to work with a guy who he was my supervisor. And I remember one time him and I were watching someone else give a presentation. And I thought that the person giving the presentation was just like doing an awful job, like tanking, probably said, um, 26 times just really doing a poor job with the presentation. The person got done, came over to us, and I'm like, okay, you know, my manager, he's about to really, or my supervisor, he's about to really kind of let him have it and give him that harsh feedback. And he just looks at him and says, hey, good job, man. And the guy's like, okay, thanks. And that was it. And so I'm like, okay, well, that's kind of weird. Then a couple of weeks later go by, I go up to give my presentation, and then I come down, and my supervisor says to me, hey, Luke, good job. I'm like, oh, hey, thanks, man. Wait a minute. You said good job to this person two weeks ago, and they did horrible. I wonder what you think about me. What does your good job really mean? So to avoid that problem, when we're encouraging people, we have to be specific. Like in that circumstance, hey, the way you told your story was really engaging and your public speaking was great. You had good vocal highs and lows, you know, stuff like that. Like if we want to encourage somebody, we have to be specific with them. 
Number, here's a number of forms of encouragement. So affirmation, gratitude, recognition, all three staples. Learn something from them. This is huge. You know, especially if you're leading someone or you're in relationship with someone, you can say all the nice things you want about them, but if you are never influenced by them, pretty soon they're going to feel like they play no role in their relationship. Learn something. Choose to learn something from them. Um, seek their feedback. Hey, you know, in this relationship, I just want to know, like, what are some things that I'm doing well? What are some things that I could do better? Last thing, ask for their input on something. You know, for me, when it comes to decision-making, a lot of times I unfortunately will go into, like, autopilot mode and not care about, or not, not that I don't care, I just don't even think to consult the people around me to make decisions. Some of my close friends will say amen to that for sure. And so um, asking for input is a way to communicate to someone that, or to encourage them. So that's encouragement. Next component of, this, of healthy communication is feedback. There has to be a culture of feedback in the relationship. Feedback is simply telling someone, hey, here's what you did well that you should keep doing. Here is what you should, that you didn't do, which you should start doing. And here's what you did do that you should stop doing. Keep doing, start doing, stop doing. All important components of feedback. Feedback again, it's good to, uh, to seek it first from someone and then give it if you need to give them feedback. It's good to be specific with feedback as well. And finally, you need to present it with humility if you want it to be well-received. That's feedback. Third thing we need for healthy communication is confrontation. I know that word sounds scary. All confrontation means is I sense there's a conflict. I want to come to you and tell you how I feel so that I can hear your side of the story. That's all. Confrontation doesn't need to be like squaring up or yelling or it just, or meanness. It's just, this is how I'm feeling. I want to know how you're feeling so we can resolve it. So you need confrontation. And I want to point out that confrontation will only be effective if we choose to communicate in a powerful way as opposed to a powerless way. Real quick, let's just review the powerless forms of communication. So the first powerless form of communication is aggressive communication. Aggressive communication says, I matter, you don't matter. I'm just going to get my way. That's aggressive. Second is passive communication. This means you matter and I don't. And I'm going to like sever our connection by not telling you anything that I want or need. Third is passive aggressive communication. This is you don't matter, but I'm too afraid to tell you directly. I'm going to make some snide comment. I'm, I'm hurt, but I'm not going to tell you that I'm hurt. I'm just going to like make, give you some backhanded compliment about what you're wearing. Passive aggressive. So when we're initiating confrontation, if we use any of those three ways of communicating, we, it will not go well. Um, some tips for effective confrontation, I would say, was, is only assume what you can see. It's kind of a strange thing to say. Only assume what you can see. So when you're confronting the person, don't make assumptions that you, that you haven't seen with your eyes. You may think you know why they did or said something, and you may have heard it from 10 other people why they did or said it. But most of the time, 
when I, you make assumptions in conflict or confrontation, they end up being wrong or not all the way true. So really just ask questions. Hey, you did this. I, might, I think I know why you did it, but I want to hear from you. Like, why did you do that? What were you thinking? So encouragement, feedback, confrontation. I believe when those three elements are present, you get healthy communication. And so to close, I want to discuss what happens when we're missing one of the three and we only have two that are there. And so let's start with the scenario where we have encouragement and we have feedback, but we're missing confrontation. What kind of happens in the relationship or the culture? Well, typically when this happens, what you get is a culture full of passive aggression. People are willing to encourage each other. They're willing to give each other feedback about how they can improve. But when an issue comes up, no one is willing to actually address it directly. And so pretty soon in the relationship or in the workplace or in the ministry, there's just all this hostility and bitterness that's been brewing, but no one is willing to call it out directly. That's a passive aggressive culture. Second scenario, when you have, incur- or sorry, when you have um, feedback and confrontation, but, more incur- but no encouragement, I, uh, I think the result in the relationship or the culture is that it becomes very judgmental or religious. You know, it's no longer about love. It's like, I am going to treat you like a science project and I just want to fix you. And I just want to kind of improve you, but not actually love on you, which that takes away the point of the relationship in the first place. Third, when we have encouragement and confrontation, but no feedback, oftentimes what happens in this is that the relationship becomes either stagnant or the culture becomes, there's a feeling of fakeness in it. Stagnant because we're willing to call each other out when we hurt each other and we encourage each other, but we never tell each other how we can actually grow or how we can get better, how we can love on each other more. You know, sometimes in relationships, people wish they could tell someone something they could do better for years, but they never do because they're afraid to give feedback and stuff just stays the same. It doesn't need to. And so uh, stagnant, but also fake, you know, The way I think about this is that if someone is continually encouraging me and that's all they're doing, and then every once in a while they say, hey, you know, two weeks ago when you, I walked down the stairs and I heard you gossiping about me, that really hurt me. And then I'm thinking, wait a minute, they've been like saying all this nice stuff about me for the past two weeks, yet they had this in their heart. Like, was all that just fake? So oftentimes that can result when you don't have feedback. But when you have all three, I believe that healthy communication exists. And when you have healthy communication, you can have the ability to approach conflicts, confront them, and resolve them in a healthy way. So I want to invite the worship team to come back out. You know, what I just showed you, that illustration, we use that in Zimbabwe and taught it to a couple of the leaders there. And they were telling us that like, you know, everyone here in Zimbabwe believes in healing and signs and wonders and miracles, but this stuff is something that like hardly anyone is practicing. And so it was cool that we kind of got to go there and uh, show them stuff that we had been learning that was actually really relevant and pertinent to their culture. So let's pray. 
Father, help us to communicate in a powerful way. We thank you that you have made us powerful. That you have made us powerful. That you love us. And we just offer up the rest of uh, this service and worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen.